0: It's the Brian Lehrer show on WNYC. Good morning everyone. On the death of Alexei Navalny. Donald Trump seems to be playing it kind of like he played the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville in 2017, you know, when he famously said there were good people on both sides. As usual, Trump is not condemning Putin. The Washington Post reminds us this morning that when Navalny was first poisoned by Putin, that was in 2000 while Trump was president. Trump was asked by Navalny to denounce the poisoning, and he did not. Asked by others, Trump deflected, saying instead things like, we should focus on China. Now Trump is again saying nothing bad about Putin. Instead, he's comparing himself to Navalny, saying the Biden administration is out to imprison him. Never mind that Trump is facing criminal charges for actual alleged crimes brought by grand juries of his peers, most not even in federal court. Navalny was poisoned, imprisoned, and now apparently murdered for expressing his views. And more than 400, this is just breaking, 400 new arrests are being reported in Russia over the last day of people simply out at vigils for Navalny. Donald Trump is not condemning those arrests. His rival for the Republican presidential nomination, Nikki Haley, said this over the weekend on CNN about Trump's silence regarding Putin. The problem is anybody that can't call out a dictator, that's a problem. You know, he should be calling, not just calling Putin out for what happened to Noveni. He should be calling Putin out for the fact that he's got Evan Grossovich as a hostage. He should be calling Putin out for invading Ukraine. He should be calling Putin out for the fact that now they are surrounding the Baltics, and Putin's getting ready for his next act. Never mind that she mispronounced Navalny as Nalvani. We'll forgive her that. Nikki Haley on CNN. She did do it multiple times. One other ominous intersection between Trump's and Putin's latest authoritarian moves, though, Trump is claiming in court that he could have his political rivals assassinated while president and be immune from prosecution for it. We've played this clip before. This is an exchange, an actual exchange between a federal appeals court judge and a Trump attorney on this question. The questions are coming from the bench a few weeks ago.
1: Could, could a president
0: order seal Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? That's an official act in order to seal
1: Team 6? He, he would have to be and would speedily be, you know, uh, Impeached and convicted before the criminal what prosecution.
0: But if, if you weren't, there would be no criminal prosecution, no p- criminal liability for that.
1: Chief Justice's opinion in Marbury against Madison and uh, uh, and our constitutional tradition and the plain language of the impeachment judgment clause all clearly presuppose that what the founders were concerned about was not.
0: I asked a- you a yes no yes or no question. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team Six to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached?
1: Would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so your answer is, is no. Is, my answer is qualified, yes.
0: So very qualified. That was January 9th, Judge Florence Pan of the Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit and Trump attorney John Sauer saying only if he is impeached and convicted first. And we know for the foreseeable future, it appears there will be enough of a Trump wing in the Senate to avoid that, with the two-thirds majority of the Senate needed to remove a president from office. So if Trump wins that case, which is now in front of the Supreme Court, he, like Putin, would be able to assassinate political rivals with no criminal charges, and he is explicitly asking the Supreme Court of the United States to allow him to do it. So there is not just a Russian context for the death of Alexei Navalny, but a U.S. and global one, too. With me now... Idris Kalun, Washington Bureau Chief for The Economist. He has two relevant articles in the last week called National Conservatives are Forging a Global Front Against Liberalism and the Growing Peril of National Conservatism, published on the day before Navalny's death became known. Idris, thanks for coming on. Welcome back to WNYC.
1: Great. Thank you for having me.
0: We'll get to your big picture take on national conservatism and what ties Trump and Putin and others together right now and the peril that you see in that. But first, on the death of Navalny, do you see world leaders dividing up into pro-Putin and anti-Putin camps?
1: You know, on the whole, the mood has been condemnatory of of Navalny's death. Um, You see that in America as well, where uh, President Biden blamed Vladimir Putin for uh, Navalny's death and said that no one should be um, fooled, uh, of course, to give the context. Uh, uh, he was poisoned by Novichok uh, nerve agent, uh, probably at the behest of Russian agents. Um, and even in the Republican primary, you've seen Nikki Haley um, basically echo that and say that, that Putin is responsible. But Donald Trump has been fairly silent. Um, he hasn't said anything condemning uh, Navalny's death. Um, and that is something that Haley is is attacking him for at the moment. But, you know, we don't know uh, whether or not he will say anything in the past. You know, if you remember back to that moment in Helsinki where he sat, he stood next to Vladimir Putin and said that he trusted his assessment over his own spy agencies. Uh, Trump has been consistently uh, hesitant to criticize Vladimir Putin. And it seems like he's choosing this moment um, as well to be circumspect.
0: Yeah. Well, what do you make of what Trump is doing, trying to say that he's a victim of his government? like Navalny was in Russia without denouncing Putin it's kind of good people on both sides isn't it uh
1: it's a, it's certainly a bit of that i mean to look trump can complain about the prosecutions that he is enduring but to uh compare himself to a man who uh was poisoned uh then uh sentenced to the gulag for 19 years then ultimately died there i think is uh is a bit beyond the pale even even for uh, past comparisons so um, you know it, this is but this is also not a total shock to to many people right given his history given even the comments uh, last week that, that he gave where he said that not only would he um, not defend NATO allies that had not met their two percent GDP defense commitments, but that uh, he would encourage Russia if they invaded to 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 go for it. Really, right. I mean that is that is beyond what any kind of normal presidential candidate, uh, Democrat or Republican, would have would have uttered.
0: And um, this this I'm like Navalny. I mean, it's not just Trump saying it on social media. I say there. Are, I see there are other Republicans. Lee Zeldin is one. I saw reported. Uh, former congressman from New York, the Republican gubernatorial candidate in New York in 2022, Lee Zeldin, and other Republicans echoing that and saying Trump is like the Navalny of the United States. How far do you think that's going to get as Washington bureau chief?
1: Um, Look, I I think there are many, uh, um, you know, voters who are going to look that favorably on that comparison. I think it is kind of the most outrageous thing that could be said about Navalny's death that it is it is kind of fundamentally solipsistic right it's it's not it it uh, changes the emphasis to um not the plight of this man nor the plight of democracy in Russia which is I think an incredibly sad uh story but it, it changes it back to well look at me look at how persecuted I am and again look from his perspective I understand why you would complain about judges and prosecutors and whatnot but to to argue that uh that there is any kind of comparison between between these two people, I think, is uh, is is plainly outrageous.
0: And listeners, we can take phone calls this morning for Idris Kalun, the Washington Bureau Chief for The Economist. Your questions or comments, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692, call or text. There was, as you know, a major conference of Western leaders over the weekend called the Munich Security Conference. The New York Times article on it this morning begins by saying, as the leaders of the West gathered in Munich over the past three days, Putin had a message for them. Nothing they've done so far, sanctions, condemnation, attempted containment, would alter his intentions to disrupt the current world order. I'm curious if you think Idris, that the murder of Navalny, assuming it was murder ordered by Putin, was time to break on Friday, specifically to thumb his nose at all the countries attending that conference.
1: Look, that's uh, you know plausible. Um, it is also the case that Russia is going to have a presidential election in a few weeks, um, in which the result is obviously preordained. Vladimir Putin will win another term. Um, but that you know the death of Navalny signifies and uh, kind of it extinguishes the kind of dissent within Russia which is all which had already been heavily heavily limited um as you know as as repressive as russia was before the war in ukraine it's become even more so afterwards and even now at this moment uh russian police are arresting anyone who expresses sympathy for uh, navalny people who um have photos in their backpack of navalny are being arrested by police people who are leaving flowers and makeshift memorials are being arrested by police so this i think could also be interpreted as a show of complete control ahead of the russian elections um but to his point that um, you know he's on the ascendancy, um, I think that there are there are some credible points there. Right, Republicans in Congress here have lost the will to fund Ukraine any further. Uh, Ukraine just lost a, a major city, um, had to give it up to to Russia. They blame the lack of artillery uh, for that loss. You know, it could be the case that Russia pushes even further, um, and sanctions and and the other tools that the West has kind of arrayed against him. They've they've certainly stalled him, but. They haven't, you know, changed his calculus, and so I think that that is there's a reason why the mood in Munich was a uh, was quite gloomy.
0: The Times goes on to say, warnings about Mr. Putin's possible next moves were mixed with Europe's growing worries that it could soon be abandoned by the United States, the one power that has been at the core of its defense strategy for seventy-five years. It reminds us Trump had famously said last week that if Europe didn't spend more toward its own defense, as the NATO treaty calls for, he would encourage Putin to attack. You cited this a minute ago. So are the European countries now pledging to meet that obligation of 2 percent of their economies on defense, as Trump has been pushing them to do ever since he was president?
1: You know, the Germans just announced that they were hitting 2% of, of GDP uh, in defense spending. And, um, you know, over his presidency, uh, Trump's threats were effective. I think you have to say that in getting European countries to actually increase their defense spending. If you look at the, the data, you see a pretty marked increase over the time that he's president, that there is this kind of fear that, um, that, uh, that there would be a penalty and that for free riding. Um, but Trump's view of NATO is just starkly different from what a kind of alliance-oriented view would actually have you say. So Trump sees this as a contract where if you pay your two percent, you get protection. It's a bit like a like a racket, um, and that is a a transactional uh, understanding of NATO. It is one that sees um, America as providing a service, um, and it it makes I think a few mistakes. One is that um, you know, the NATO alliance is also good for America um, in a way that Trump doesn't seem to fully grasp or understand. But to, to your question about what the Europeans are doing, I mean, there, there's always been discussion about a European army. Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission, said that there would be interest in maybe European spending on on defense collectively uh, that's something that traditionally hasn't happened before there are moves towards um, thinking about what Europe could do what NATO members could do without America um, at the core but um, you know Trump's election would only if it happened would only be nine months from now so it's it's actually it's actually not that much time if, if you're Europe and having to, to deal with this uh, this very I, I would say almost existential question.
0: Yeah. And on it being an existential question, Nikolai Denkov, the prime minister of Bulgaria, is quoted in the Times saying the war in Ukraine is about, quote, whether the democratic world we value can be beaten. And this is now well understood in Europe, he said. And so maybe that's a good jumping off point for you to define national conservatism as you use it in your reporting.
1: Yeah. So national conservatism is a new kind of ideological strain within conservatism that that really is very, very different from what dominated before. It is kind of the upside down version of Reaganism and, and Thatcherism. It is, and it's exemplified by people like Donald Trump. It is one that um you know values basically national sovereignty above everything else and the particular vision of nationalism within a state it is one that um, steers away from the traditional emphasis on individual freedom uh, small government free markets, etc it is uh, it is just a very different view of what being a conservative is and the point of this piece is that it's not just America where these ideas have taken off. Um, Hungary is an example of a place where, uh, these ideas have been used by Viktor Orban to great effect to legitimize um, his rule there. But you see, you know, the Polish uh, Law and Justice Party um, also had a very similar vision uh, in Italy. Georgia Maloney um, descended from parties that, that embrace these kinds of ideas. Um, and, you know, they, they are mounting at this point in a serious intellectual challenge to what it means to be a conservative. Um, and, you know, the, the connection with Russia, I think, is is harder to make at some points. Certainly some of the, the people in this movement expressed mostly before um, the war in Ukraine, although Tucker Carlson's exception, but mostly they expressed admiration for Putin before that. And that's because Putin had cleverly um, positioned himself as a kind of warrior in this culture war, right? He embraced the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, he was anti-LGBT. He said that um, you know he was fighting the West and, and its decadence. And so there was some admiration There, Um, I think a lot of that has dissipated, um, except for Tucker. Um, But, you know, that that idea that someone that there needs to be an alliance across borders to attack um, globalization, to attack international liberalism um, is not only strong, but it's, I think, growing.
0: Listener writes, why do you call these reactionary fascists conservatives? What of the present day do they want to conserve? They can't conserve the past.
1: Yeah. So in their defense, what they are saying that they want to conserve is the family, the community, and oftentimes religion, oftentimes a kind of cultural uh, sense of of the nation, that that is what they are aiming to preserve. Um, So that's that's what they say they are um, preserving. I think it is incorrect to call them fascist. Um, I think that The set of folks that I'm talking to, autocracy and autocratic tendencies are there. But I think fascism is, uh, you know, marked by a expansionist ideology, um, you know, seeking to go beyond borders to conquer, um, uh, you know, great stretches of land um and it often has a strong association with genocide which again i'm ta- not talking about putin i don't lump putin into this into this group but i think that that is uh somewhat inaccurate phrasing and also i think that um you know sometimes fascism i think of as kind of the thought stopping word for political discussion we sort of say okay fascist bad um therefore i don't need to i can dismiss these folks and i guess my point is that you 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 shouldn't you need to take their ideas very seriously you need to understand what is propelling this political project because it is it is scoring highly in democratic societies across Europe and and certainly in America and I think that just saying well it's fascist and therefore it's it's uh, it's not worth um, examining closely I think would be incorrect
0: Jim in Ocean County in Jersey you're on WNYC with Adrice yeah. Calhoun Washington Bureau Chief for the Economist Hi Jim Yeah this is sort of ridiculous going over I mean everything uh, it it, it. Should go back to the whole link of Trump being a Russian asset. The Mana, Manafort worked to dis- displace or after uh, Yanukovych was replaced uh, in, in, the, in the, all, all, all the activity in, in Ukraine, and then he became the uh, uh, campaign manager for Trump. And, and the Kalimnik, uh information that was passed uh, that Trump is a blatant Russian asset. Thank you, Jim. And another uh, listener along those lines writes, Trump is the Manchurian candidate, which references an old piece of fiction from the Cold War. Um, So anything on the importance of for how long Trump has been a Putin ally? Uh, You know, Jim, I think rightly takes us back to Paul Manafort, takes us back to the Russia investigation, even though that kind of faded with a whimper. Uh, there was a lot there, uh, so do, does it matter that Trump has been an ally of Putin for like ten years now?
1: Well, look, I, I think it goes too far to say that that Trump is a is a Putin ally. Um, you know, we had the Mueller investigation that examined um, a lot of these these accusations, and you know, I trust uh, the special counsel to have unearthed um, you know evidence in, if if that was really the case. And and you know, maybe your recollection is different, but I, I did not feel that he compellingly demonstrated anything to that effect. Obviously, it is Well, important.
0: whether there was actual collusion between the Trump campaign and the government of Russia is a, is a different question, I think, than mm. whether Trump is a Putin ally, right? Yeah. He was saying yes, nice yes. things about yes. Putin in the 2016 yes. campaign.
1: Yes, he certainly says nice things about Putin. You know, the Helsinki moment... Um, where they stood next to each other and he took the word of, of Putin over um, his own intelligence agencies was a, a low point for his right. presidency. And it is obviously, um, it again, goes back to this kind of inversion of, of uh, what conservatism means that, you know, Ronald Reagan, the Cold War warrior is now um, his successor is, is a man who, um, you know, takes, takes Putin's side. And, and if you look at, you um, Within the party itself, you know J.D. Vance and Tucker Carlson of these folks. Sometimes, the you know, if you if you read their analysis of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, you don't get the sense that they think that uh, Ukraine is the victim. You get the sense sometimes they think that Ukraine is the villain, and that is a very stark and kind of upsetting departure from what it means. But I think that we we need to understand that Trumpism as a phenomenon is is one that kind of sprung up from domestic sources. It's not a kind of externally imposed Manchurian candidate sort of, um, uh, you know, takeover of the government. That would kind of excuse uh, the necessary kind of introspection that's needed to understand what's going on um, here. It's I don't think it's just as simple as that.
0: Patricia in Livingston, New Jersey, you're on WNYC. Hi, Patricia.
1: Oh, hi there. Good morning. I just think it would Uh, be worthwhile to mention that in Trump's perception of NATO, he portrays it as these foreign governments aren't paying enough money to the U.S. to support NATO function and that's quite contrary. The NATO is required, the nations in NATO are required to spend on their own military. So their commitment is to pay their own military to support NATO functions and that just misrepresents the whole situation.
0: Yeah, Patricia, I guess Trump's point, although he misrepresents it. I've heard him do it just in the last few days. He makes it sound like they owe money to the United States and they're not paying. Correct. Or, even though it's it's what you say, but I think if he was pressed further, he would say the point is still that if they're not contributing what they are obligated to under the treaty to NATO's defense, then it puts more of a burden on the US taxpayer uh, when spending needs to be done. I-
1: uh, I get your point, but I think you give him far too much credit for that.
0: For thinking it through to that degree, uh, thank yeah. you. Well, well, uh, Idris, maybe it's worth giving everybody a little refresher on what that requirement actually is, because Patricia got it right and why it is.
1: Um, yeah, so I, I think Patricia was was right. So, so NATO is an alliance. There is a an Article uh, Five guarantee. Uh, that basically says that if one member of NATO is attacked, all of NATO um, will actually contribute to its defense will will come to its defense. And actually, that's only been invoked once on behalf of the United States after 9-11. You know, it hasn't happened in in, in the other countries. But NATO's guidelines also say that every country ought to spend 2% of their GDP on defense spending each year. Um, And as Patricia said, that's on their own um, uh, defense, uh, as well, it's not kind of pooled together, although there's a lot of kind of sharing of of information and, and, and standards of operation and whatnot. But you know, that, that, that summary is is exactly right, but um, that two percent is is a is a guideline. It is not a um, you know if you are delinquent you are kicked out of the club. The club is is about a military alliance against invasion, um, and so you know to and to even threaten. To not honor Article Five, I think emboldens the enemies of of NATO, principally Russia, and I think you've already seen that. I think that Trump has already, despite the fact that he's no longer in office, his comments alone have already um, shaken NATO, and and you even see some some people in in NATO say that explicitly that that Trump's comments um, have made scenarios that they thought were impossible more likely now, um, and you know that's that's not good.
0: We'll continue in a minute with Idrees Kalun who's the Washington Bureau Chief for The Economist. More of your calls and texts at 212-433-WNYC. When we come back, I I, want to question you a little bit on this premise that um, the Putin alliance aside, that Trumpism or what you call national conservatism is so different from Reaganism. So we'll do that and more. Stay with us, Brian Lehrer on WNYC. Brian Lehrer on WNYC as we continue with Idris Kalun, Washington Bureau Chief for The Economist. He's got a couple of articles that came out last week just before the death of Alexei Navalny uh, was was announced, um, including one called The Growing Peril of National Conservatism. And if you listen to uh, part one of our conversation before the break, we were talking about ways in which uh, Idris contrasts national conservatism, sort of the rising kind of conservatism today, with uh, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher conservatism. And I actually wonder if they're as different as people sometimes say, and this is obviously not just you, Idris, making this uh, contrast. But You say Reagan and Thatcher were for the free movement of of capital across borders and fairly liberal immigration. They were for building alliances through strong international institutions like NATO. They were more in favor of military intervention in the Cold War era than Trump and company rhetoric, which is skeptical of foreign wars. And you say the new national conservatives' economic policies are more aligned with the left's style of thinking skeptical of big business willing to accept a big welfare state concerned with working class hardships and protecting domestic businesses through protectionism your words but let's go down that list to me the only thing that really checks the box as the opposite of reagan is opposition to immigration so let me question you on some of the others you say skeptical uh-huh. of big business and concerned with working class hardships a little like the left but didn't Trump in office give big tax breaks to the wealthy and to corporations, oppose Obamacare or Medicare for all, oppose legislation that gives more rights to unions, oppose an increase in the minimum wage, oppose family leave, paid family leave, cut food stamps, which go to many employed people, and I could go on?
1: Yeah, no, that's that's right. So, so Trump's signature um, policy, which was the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, is a um callback to the paul ryan style of politics the george bush style of politics it is it is you're correct it's 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 reaganist in in that sense but what I'm talking about here is a, a difference in, in economic views. So I think you see this more in the trade policy that Trump inaugurated when he was um, in office. That was something he had control over. And that's something that he moved very aggressively um, to uh, install protectionist barriers, not just against China, but against allies uh, such as Canada. Even that is kind of the opposite of, of, of Reaganism. He, he he campaigned against NAFTA, um, against the WTO. That is uh, kind of, in economic terms, uh, very different from from Reagan. And the other point um, is that you know Trump's distinction from previous iterations of, of Republicans, Mitt Romney, George Bush, Paul Ryan, um, was his attitude towards entitlement uh, spending. So Republicans would would get into trouble because they would say things like, "Well, we you know we need to ultimately privatize." Um, Elements of of this social safety net, and Trump kind of through gut populist instinct realized that that was a vote loser, and so he has said and still says today that he has no intention of cutting benefits for Social Security, of cutting benefits for for Medicare and Medicaid. But um, in terms of of you know the intellectuals attached to this movement and, and the kinds of things that they're arguing for, I think that if you you read kind of you know what JD Vance and Marco Rubio and and Josh Hawley were saying about for example, an expanded child tax credit. Um, uh, that's very different from, you know, from what Ronald Reagan was saying about welfare queens and his, his skepticism about um, cash handouts. I think that there is something actually serious afoot in terms of the economic policy.
0: But skeptical of big business? Where is it other than, say, to criticize Disney for having gay characters in some of their stories and other policies that the new right ties to so-called wokeism in the workplace?
1: No, I I think that's it. I think that, you know, the cozy alliance between big business and the Republican Party has been broken up. A lot of it is over these cultural concerns about uh, wokeness, about ESG, um, DEI policies, and and these sorts of things. But you see, I mean, as a, I I would certainly count Ron DeSantis as an exemplary member of the National Conservatives, and you see that his attitude there was to basically um, you know, treat Disney punitively uh, for uh, having the temerity to criticize him. Um, And I I think you see that um, in the rhetoric, certainly, uh, among this new breed of Republicans. You're right that the 2017 tax doesn't job. Act reflected that old style of, of Republican governance. But I think rhetorically, if you look at what's happened since, um, it's a very different relationship.
0: Yeah, it just seems to me it's, it's a different relationship only on culture war grounds, not on economic grounds. And, and it makes me think, isn't the core here not about war or big business or the working class very much at all, but about race and identity and theocracy? They see poor people of color as getting over on white working in middle-class taxpayers, kind of like Reagan did. And they want to indulge their hatred of LGBTQ people and Christian dominance over Islam. Sometimes it's Judeo-Christian dominance when it's convenient to frame it that way for them. At Charlottesville, of course, it was Jews will not replace us. So isn't this new right so much about identity? And Reagan, too, ran on so-called welfare queens, bilking the American taxpayer of part of his political core – which was also about a backlash to the social and economic progressivism of the 60s and 70s. He was against affirmative action. So so. how much do you really think this is a turnabout from Reaganism rather than an heir to it in the culture war sense?
1: Um, I, I do still think that it is a turnabout for Reaganism. I think fundamentally at the level of just outlook. Reagan thought America was the shining city on the hill, that America had values that it ought to be proud of and that it ought to, that the other, the rest of the world ought to be like it. And Trumpism and this new kind of strain of conservatism argues the exact opposite, that America is beset by carnage, that it is being overrun, that, you know, uh, its institutions have been captured by hostile ideology, et cetera. Um, that is the kind of, it is fundamentally declinist. And that is, I think, the opposite of how Reagan saw, um, saw America. And I think if you go to your point about, Um, Is this about identity? I think it is about identity. I think it's a feeling that um, that, you know, uh, that the right is losing the culture war and and that things are changing too quickly. Now, I think that it, you know, there's this paradox, which is that if it's all about hostility to race, why is it that Republicans are making inroads among uh, non-white voters, particularly among Hispanic voters, you know, who have shifted pretty sharply towards the right while Donald Trump has been in office. And you know, there's also uh, polling and and election results that suggest that Trump has made inroads among African American men. So I don't think that it can be as simply reduced to, um, well, this is just about white supremacy and antagonism towards towards race. I think there's something complicated uh that's going on it ties into identity and identity means for a lot of people hostility to especially illegal uh immigration in particular um and you know the uh you know the the left, I think, has been a bit slow to respond to that. And you see kind of Joe Biden attempting to do some stuff on the border. But I think that it's uh, it's it's been difficult. And I think that, you know, the enemies of, of liberalism, and that's what I think that, you know, national conservatism is at its core, um, have seized on that and have have made a lot of political progress as a result of that.
0: Kitty in Manhattan. You're on WNYC with Idris Colun, Washington Bureau Chief for The Economist. Hi, Kitty. Hi there. I want him to talk a little bit about the fact that there's still money coming from corporations to the 147 people in the House who are like the Republican obstructionists, who are mega people. That you need to talk about the corporate power that's still behind the scenes rooting for Trump, Trumpism, and uh, that would be laissez-faire capitalism. And he needs to talk about that a little bit. There's a Cruz study that recently showed that corporations that said they would not support the the mega stuff are still giving money to those 147 people, the, the the deniers of of the election. They're still doing that, and he needs to talk a little bit about who's dark money that's still flowing to to the Trump mega mega operation. Kitty, thank you, Idris. Anything on that?
1: Well, you know, yes, corporations said that they would suspend payments after January 6, and they've gone back on that. You know, corporations basically, a lot of the big ones give kind of equal measure to Democrats and Republicans so that they have some uh, some amount of ability to talk to to people. But I, I think that I, I spent a lot of time studying campaign finance. Um, you know, individual contributions matter a lot more in terms of size than, uh, than the corporate uh, donations do. Um, that's the kind of big ballast behind the billion dollars or so that every campaign is going to have behind them. So I think that um, you know, in terms of of how much it is actually affecting our politics, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical that it's it's the kind of driver of a lot of this this dysfunction.
0: Let me touch uh, one more thing before we run out of time. Um, also, at the Munich Security Conference this weekend, another big topic was Israel and Gaza. And the pr- President of Israel, Am Herzog and the Prime Minister of the Palestinian Authority, uh, Mohammed Shtaya, um, were both at the conference. Herzog said the hostages are his number one concern right now. The Palestinian Prime Minister, Shtaya, said this.
1: Our top priority now is to end the uh, aggression against our people, to end the war, and also to allow international aid to get into Gaza. But also, what is more important is a political solution, not only for Gaza, but for all of Palestine, that does material in a two-state reality, where countries do recognize Palestine as a state, and Palestine will be admitted as a member state to the United Nations.
0: Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Shdaya to the news organization CGTN. Idris, do you see a Western coalition of any kind pressuring... Both Israel directly and Hamas through Qatar and Saudi Arabia, maybe, to end this war in some way.
1: I mean, there is already pressure um, on Israel, and particularly warning against an invasion of a ground invasion of Rafah, which is where uh, more than a million Palestinians are now have fled to and are living in, in camp cities. So. You know, the, the leaders of Canada and Australia have said that uh, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, um, said that invading Rafa would be a grave violation of international law. And, and Biden has not gone so far as that. But he has said that he had warned publicly that Israel shouldn't should invade Rafa and and, uh, and avoid that and that there needs to be a plan. America has not gone as far as other countries in saying that there ought to be a ceasefire. But they are um, negotiating very strenuously with the Qataris, with the Egyptians, to get a deal in, in place that would, um, you know, hopefully resolve some of these issues. There, America publicly is committed to two state solution. The problem is that you know Hamas is not. Uh, Hamas still, at its core, says that it aims for the elimination of the Jewish state, and Netanyahu is not. Um, and that is a that is an issue. He is he is cautioned uh, against. Um, uh, you know, uh, recognition of Palestinian statehood. He has said that that would be a reward for October seventh if that were to happen. Um, so that is a that that is the, the hurdles that that America faces. And right now, you know, as much as Joe Biden did his best um, to kind of embrace the Israelis after the horrific attack, um, tensions between him and Netanyahu are extremely high. Um, and so that is not a, a great relationship uh, at the moment.
0: I see that the photos on page one of your article on the perils of national conservatism are of Trump, Orban of Hungary, Maloney of Italy, someone I don't recognize, and Netanyahu. Where do you think not yet, Netanyahu fits in to that larger picture? Certainly in the, the weakening of the judiciary category, which is something you say ties these national conservative leaders together. Uh, we know he's tried to do that in Israel. Where, where do you think he fits in big picture?
1: Um, Yeah, I I think that is a common tendency that that judicial reform, which was incredibly uh, controversial when he tried to push it through this feeling that uh, you know, that, uh, that state institutions and separation of power, um, is something that constrains an executive and that, you know, the kind of state power ought to be unchecked, I think is, is one thing that he has in common. I mean, the other point, this is not like a national conservative thing, but the other thing he has in common with Trump is that, uh, being in office is currently keeping him out of jail. Um, he's under, uh, investigation has been charged with corruption. Um, and so, you know, the, The time that he's in office, I think, also kind of limits his his uh, his accountability um, in the democratic sense. So I think that that is another commonality that you see there. But of course, you know, Israeli nationalism is very different from. Uh, American nationalism, not least because of its kind of, you know, it has clear kind of Jewish roots compared to uh, some of the American nationalists are much more Christian in their orientation, of course. Um, and, you know, the founding of, of Israel itself, you, you know, it was a nationalist cause. And I think that that has been turned in a direction under Netanyahu, which is very different from how someone like Benny Gantz, um, if he were to be the next prime minister, would, would see it and would use it.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, Biden, we keep hearing, and this is for you as Washington Bureau Chief covering the presidential campaigns, Biden is getting increasingly fed up with Netanyahu's refusal to protect civilians more while fighting Hamas. Biden might not accept the word genocide, but he does increasingly believe and articulate that what Israel is doing in Gaza is horrific, and now there are reports in this country of Arab Americans in the swing state of Michigan saying they won't vote for Biden in November because he's not different enough from Trump on Gaza. So Biden needs to be punished to make sure there's at least one party that cares about them. Also, NBC News reported this weekend on the reproductive justice movement now fracturing over the harm to thousands of pregnant women and new mothers in Gaza that the U.S. isn't doing anything about as they see it. And some of those activists say they won't vote for Biden, even though he's nominally pro-choice, because reproductive justice is more than just access to abortion. So I'm, I'm curious how much you see at this point the politics of Gaza, if not the morality as Biden sees it, affecting what he might do next on this war.
1: Well, I think you can see that the Biden campaign is concerned about um, this abandoned Biden movement among uh, some Muslim Americans. The campaign has sent um, several kind of high-level folks to Michigan to meet with uh, Muslims there and to speak with them. Sometimes they've you know, they've kind of turned that down. They've, they've said, we don't want to meet with you. But they're devoting some amount of attention to it, which suggests to me that that they do actually worry about the consequences of of this. I mean, on the whole, it's true that Americans uh, don't really kind of factor foreign policy into their voting decisions, particularly if there aren't troops involved, as is the case in Ukraine and as is the case in Israel. Um, But obviously, to some Americans, to Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, even who aren't Arab and have family there but feel a kind of kinship with the Palestinians, um, this issue matters a lot. And you know, I think we can question whether or not um, you know, voting, uh, abandoning Biden is is cutting off one's nose despite one's face. But um, the anger is is quite real; it's quite palpable. Um, I know that uh, from my own family and my own family friends. But um, you know, the Democrats, I think, do have to do have to deal with it. I mean, what Biden has moved closer and closer to criticizing Israel. He said that um, their actions in Gaza were over the top. Uh, that was a direct quote that that he gave. But for a lot of Muslims, they see the fact that, you know, America is still sending artillery, still sending ammunition, um, you know, not calling for a ceasefire. And and they say that, you know, talk is cheap, but action is different. So um, I I think it could be an issue. Obviously, Michigan is an incredibly important swing state. But, um, you know, we have a a lot of months between now and November. So uh, things could also change.
0: Idris Kalun, Washington Bureau Chief for The Economist. His article out the other day, National Conservatives are Forging a Global Front Against Liberalism, and one called The Perils of National Conservatism. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it a lot. Great.
1: Thank you so much.